You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Today I want to preach on the subject, or actually for the next two weeks, when God moves into the neighborhood. When God moves into the neighborhood. Stranger Things, Season 3. Now, I don't know if you know what I mean by that. It, it, it is a show that on what they used to call television, and, and now is a show on the internet, all right? And if you don't know about Stranger Things, that's totally fine. I'm not going to do one of those sermon illustrations where I spend 10 minutes explaining all the characters in the context for you. What you need to know is that there is this fictitious, or maybe not fictitious, government lab in the city of Hawkins, Indiana in the early 80s. It is a lab run by the Department of Energy where Paul Davis works. He can neither confirm nor deny that such labs exist. And in this lab, a group of government scientists use a secret energy and they open up a portal to what's called the Upside Down and they let out a monster. And so for three seasons, the people, the good folks of the show, have been fighting the monster. There you go. That's the whole plot of the show. What called the show to my mind this week and what inspired my preacherly imagination is that season three began as the other seasons have in the scene of a laboratory. And as the government secret scientists are doing an unwise experiment in the laboratory, working with a powerful energy, they're wearing these suits, okay? And you've seen these kind of suits before in movies or television, you know? It's a suit with goggles, and, you know, the workers are completely covered. It has a mask that covers every part of their body. They have breathing tubes. Well, uh, I got curious this week, so I looked up those suits, okay? They are called positive pressure personnel suits. And I think when they were naming these suits, they asked the preacher, what should I call this? And the preacher said, I got three P's for you. Positive pressure personnel suit. PPP suits are highly specialized, totally encapsulating industrial protection garments worn only within special biocontainment or maximum containment laboratory facilities. Basically, when a worker or a lab assistant is in the presence of something highly powerful, some sort of material or highly contagious deadly pathogen like anthrax, for which there's no cure or vaccine, you wear a positive pressure personnel suit. Because when you are in the dangerous presence of radioactive material or deadly diseases, you don't just waltz on any old way into the laboratory, right? You have to have something between you and the powerful forces that can literally destroy your life. In order to have access into the presence of something powerful, you have to have protection. You have to have something between you and the power to provide covering. You need a positive pressure personnel suit. When we get to this point in the book of Exodus and to chapter 25, we have seen the powerful presence of God come down at least two times. Back in chapter 3 with the burning bush where the presence of God met Moses and God said, take off your feet because you're standing what? On holy ground. And then in Sinai in chapter 19 where the presence of God came down in a pillar of fire and the mountain quaked and God said, don't let the people even touch the mountain because if they do, they will get smoked. And... It is with that in mind that we come to chapter 5 where this God, where this powerful one says to the Israelites, 
I would like to move into your neighborhood. <laughs> and so we're, we are met with the question, how, is, uh, how are the people who cannot even handle the, the presence of the pure and holy God, live, how are they going to live in the same neighborhood with this God? How are those who are unclean and impure going to come into the presence of the clean and the pure and the holy without getting smoked? It's like Russ said last week, the question is not, how are the people going to make room for God in their lives? The question is, how is the king going to make room for them to dwell with him? How could God possibly live in the same neighborhood as you or I? That question is what brings us to Exodus chapter 25, and we begin to encounter 13 chapters in the book of Exodus about this thing called the tabernacle. All right. It is from the Hebrew verb shakan, which means to dwell, to abide, to reside, to move into the neighborhood. And mishkan is the noun form of this Hebrew verb, which means the dwelling place of God, the house of God. So we get, we get back in Genesis, we get two or three chapters about the whole creation of the world, right? And the fall into sin. And here we get 13 chapters about the tabernacle. And then that's followed by 37 chapters in Leviticus and Numbers all about the sacrificial system and the priesthood. And it's at this point when reading the Bible that we begin to cry out for God's mercy just to read the Bible. Back in the spring, we were reading through Exodus in our daily prayer project. And Kenny Gibbs said to me, it's hard when you get to those later chapters of Exodus, Doc. Ah, now maybe that's true. But maybe part of the problem is we don't keep this cosmic theme of dwelling in mind when we read all of these chapters about the tabernacle. We don't keep this larger theme of how this relates to the story of Jesus Christ as we think about the tabernacle. So today I want to talk about the first aspect of when God moves into the neighborhood, which is the aspect of access. And I want to give you, in preacherly fashion, three P's of access. There's the pattern of access, there's the price of access, and there's the purpose of access. The pattern, the price, and the purpose. Verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. When we get to the design and symbolism of this tent called the tabernacle, we see that God gives the instructions to Moses for exactly how he is going to live in their midst, for exactly how he is going to be worshipped, because again, this is the holy God. You don't just waltz into his presence, right? And so the tabernacle, though, what you have to understand about it is the tabernacle is not some otherworldly kind of creation. Fundamentally, the tabernacle is a tent with furniture inside where someone lives. Guess what? All the Israelites lived inside a tent with furniture inside where they lived. And so what we see is the fundamental reality that when God speaks to a people, he does so incarnationally. He speaks with cultural idioms and pictures and symbols that the people understand. It is a teaching for us as we do ministry in life, that if we are going to minister in the name of Christ, we incarnate ourselves among peoples, among cultures, among symbols. But God, what he teaches here is that he uses the ordinary things of our lives to communicate extraordinary realities. Jesus was always doing this, right? Using culturally relevant stories and pictures. First of all, the tabernacle is a tent with furniture inside where all of them lived. It even the furniture inside is very recognizable. There's an ark, which literally could be translated a box or a chest, which is common in the house for storage. There is a lamp for light, and there is a table in which bread is set. 
every single day. There is a basin for washing out in the court of the tabernacle, and outside there is a grill for roasting meat, (laughs) the altar. (laughs) All of these things were common to each of the Israelite houses. And so when the Israelites see the tabernacle, they are supposed to think, somebody lives here. Somebody lives here. And the lampstand remains lit for 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. So that at night, it is the brightest lit thing in the whole neighborhood. And what are they supposed to think? Somebody is there. But in the tabernacle, the common things that they would have had in their houses are transformed. And God uses uh, aesthetics and design and material to transform them for their eyes. Remember back last week, God said, bring to me all this gold and silver and fine purple and blue cloth. These are the things that adorn the tabernacle. Each of the furniture, especially in the most holy place, the ark is overlaid inside and outside with gold, which would have been quite a sight to see. And gold, of course, is very expensive. And all of the the curtains that surrounded the holy place are made of purple and blue, which, again, we can go out and buy purple or blue fabric, no problem, right, at the Dollar General or something. But back in this day, purple fabric was made in Phoenicia, and they had to take millions of shellfish crush them up, boil them, strain them, and that's how they got blue uh, fabric so that you can imagine how expensive it was, the price you had to pay. So the Israelites, when they looked at the tabernacle, they did not only think somebody lives here, they thought somebody royal lives here. A king lives here. What you see in the layout of the tabernacle is that there are three layers from the inside out. If you look all the way on the left side of the picture, in the most inner curtain is called the most holy place. Its measurements are a perfect square, right? The the measurements of perfection. And this inmost room only contained the Ark of the Covenant inside. And only the high priest could go into this room. And only him, only one day per year. On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. And then outside of that square, there was the holy place. Not the most holy place, but the holy place, which was a rectangle, not a square, not as perfect as a square. And inside this room, only the priests could go, not the people of Israel. And this room had the lampstand and the table and the altar for incense. And then finally, once you see outside the structure itself is called the courtyard. And that is where there was a basin for washing. That is where there was an altar for sacrificing meat. And only a clean Israelite could come inside the court. And all of it is surrounded by an eight-foot-tall fence so that no one could see what was going on unless they were brought in to the curtains. So what this would communicate to the onlookers and to the Israelite is that this is a royal, holy palace. And there is limited access the deeper you get in. And only the high priest can go into the most holy place. There's a lack of access to the most high. Yes, he lives in the neighborhood, but you can't just walk into his house. You don't just walk into the king's house unless access is granted. The instructions begin first with the Ark of the Covenant before anything else. You notice that? Before the rooms of the tabernacle, before the layout, before all of its curtains and the courtyard, it begins at the center. It begins at the ark where the Lord ultimately, symbolically, and really dwells. It is the, if, if the tabernacle is the center of the Lord's holy power, the ark is the epicenter of that power, the reactor, the core nuclear reactor. And inside the ark, the people of Israel were supposed to place the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, which would what? Remember that 
It would cause them to remember that it is God's covenant that he rests upon. It is his word that he rests upon. And eventually the Israelites put two other objects into the ark, which is the manna, a jar of the manna from uh, the wilderness journeys, and the budding rod of Aaron, which represents the high priesthood. All of these objects that the, the people put in the ark were ultimately symbolically saying this, that God is sovereign to keep his covenant that he is going to provide for them, that he has provided the priesthood for them, the manna for them, the promises of the covenant, that he is the God who brought them out of Israel. Sorry, out of Egypt. The ark is fitted with a cover, a lid that is translated here as mercy seat. It is a hard uh, Hebrew word to translate, but it might be better translated atonement cover. It is the place where atonement is ultimately made between God and the people. And on this lid, there are two cherubim. We have seen two cherubim only one other time in the Bible before this. My Bible trivia nerds, when was that? Well... It was in the third chapter of Genesis after the man and woman were exiled from the garden and God placed two cherubim with flaming swords at the entrance to the garden saying, you don't have access to my presence anymore because if I let you in, you would die. So this is where symbolically the Lord resides upon the two cherubim. The 99th Psalm in the first verse says the Lord is enthroned upon the cherubim. So for the Israelite worshiper and even the regular priest, they never get access to this most holy place. They never truly get access into the Lord's presence and the high priest only once per year. And when he did it, he had to bring blood with him. He had to burn so much incense on the altar that he couldn't even see the Ark of the Covenant or the lid. And he had to just kind of go in there and sprinkle blood on the most holy place and at the feet of the Ark to make atonement for himself and for all of the people's sins. It's not just about this Israelite sin or that Israelite sin and the sin they confess and the sin they know about. It's about their unintentional sins too. It's about their uncleanness. And the the high priest goes into this place once per year. So what is the pattern of access that God is teaching them? What is God teaching Israel is that only through sacrifice can the worshiper approach the Lord. Only by something or someone paying the price of death will will there be access. Only by the blood of something can the impurity of sin, which endangers the people in the presence of a holy God, be removed. Or as the writer of the book of Hebrews, who we will go to a lot today, because he liked this this section of the the Bible, he talked about it a lot. And he said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That concept is hard for us, isn't it? Why blood? Well, blood was taught and understood among the ancient Near Eastern cultures and among God's people to be a powerful cleansing agent. It both ransomed and paid the debt of the sin that had been committed against another or against God, but it also sanctified and purified the worshiper. In fact, God taught this to them in Leviticus 17. He said, For the life of the flesh, the life of the animal, is in the blood. And I have given I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, sin is impurity, but sin is also debt. A debt that must be repaid before there is access to God and brightness of relationship. There is a price of access. A price of access. But I think when this whole concept of atonement and approaching through sacrifice comes up, I think it's quite challenging for our ears. It's one reason we don't connect with this part of the Bible, do we? All of its regulations and requirements. You can be honest, saints. It feels bloody. It feels cruel. 
It feels cold. It feels overburdening. But what you have to remember about the heart of the whole system and what it reveals is this, is that the Lord wants to dwell with the people. But for that to happen, and for the unjust to come into the presence of the just and the unholy into the presence of the holy, justice and cleansing must be satisfied or else the people will die. It is not God's fault. It is not His liability. It is the people's liability. They can't live with Him, but He wants them to. We have many in our culture who cry out for justice today, and rightly so, because the human heart longs for justice. But how much more does the heart of the Lord long for and require justice? We just heard it in the call to worship this morning, that the Lord loves righteousness and justice, that these are the foundational aspects of who the holy God is. And we have things we look at in our culture and we say, something needs to be done about that. Somebody's got to pay the moral debt of that Activity of those years of systemic oppression, of that verdict that was incorrect and people served jail time for something they didn't do, well, the, the, someone should pay the debt for that time. We intrinsically know that sin and evil is a debt to be repaid. Every human culture realizes that. That's why we have a justice system. Because if not, it's just completely unjust and unsatisfying to the human person made in the image of God. And it's easy to look out there and say something must be done about this. It is harder to do the inward look and say something must be done about this. And so many of the laws that will be given in the sacrificial system will be addressing this. If you do this sin, you're unclean. Or if you participate in this activity, or if, you're, if you touch a dead body, if you're near death, or if you're defiled, you have to come and bring an offering and make atonement for your uncleanness and your sinfulness, and you'll be restored into relationship with God and His people. That is the basic understanding for the next 47 chapters of the Bible, right? We can't always explain why the laws are the way they are, right? You hear this a lot. Shellfish, putting old cloth on new cloth. Boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. So don't eat goat curry. Uh, we don't know why the laws are the way they are. Not all of them, at least. A lot of them, we can see the moral focus or the moral principle behind the law. But ultimately, what we know is that it's related to holiness. It's related to who God is as a holy God and how the people are to be set apart. And it's related, ultimately, to the heart of the Father to bring back His children into fellowship with Him. What we see in the sacrificial system is that the Lord will stop at nothing to get his wayward children back. But what we can also see is that this section of the scripture is a pattern given to God's people to prepare them for the better covenant to come. For a sacrifice that didn't have to be made year after year. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says the whole continual nature of the sacrifice showed that it's not efficacious. It doesn't work. You have to come back and do it day after day and year after year. It is burdening. And if you read this section of the scripture and you feel burdened, you should. It is a burden to have to atone for your sins. Right? But this pattern is to prepare the people for a better sacrifice that could be made once and for all. A better, truer high priest who didn't have to atone for his own sin, who wasn't himself corrupt for a more perfect tabernacling of the Lord. So, beloved, let this tabernacle moment here in Exodus not bore you, but let it whet your appetite and thrill you for the things that have been revealed to come. 
Let it lead you to the realization that the barrier that existed between God's people and Him has been torn in two, not by us, but by Jesus. And so when you get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it grabs hold of all this pattern and picture and symbolism of the tabernacle, and it reinterprets it for followers of Jesus. I'm just going to read a few excerpts from Hebrews 8 and 9, which will be poignant after reading what we've read. The writer says, There are priests who offer gifts according to the law of Moses. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. He says, For when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to what? The pattern that I have shown you on the mountain. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly pace of holiness. For a tent was prepared in the first section in which there were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn for holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowed the mercy seat. See, he knew this architecture. And then he says, of these things I can't speak now in detail. So evidently there was a lot he could have said about the symbolism, but he doesn't waste his time. He keeps moving on in his sermon. He says, these preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section, into the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But the second section, only the high priest goes, and him but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, listen, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as that curtain stands between the holy place and the most holy place. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices of animals are offered but cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Because these things only deal with food and with drink and with washings, regulations for the body imposed, what, until the time of reformation. And then our word of assurance today, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats of, of calves, and by means of, but by means of his own blood. thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal covenant offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And he says, now the point we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister, which means a worship leader in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. How much more, says the book of Hebrews. It teaches that the blood of bulls and goats could never truly atone for sin and bring us back to the Father. It teaches us that through this system of the tabernacle, though it was good and necessary for a time, its time was fading. Its time was fading until a better way of the Lord dwelling and cleansing His people would be revealed. The end of the story is that the price has been paid. The end of the story is that your cleansing has been accomplished and that you may, if you are in Christ, 
with confidence come into the most holy of places, claiming the sprinkled blood on your behalf that sanctifies you, that pays the debts of your sin, that makes you ritually clean, to come into the presence of God, not clothed in your own sinfulness, but clothed in His righteousness. You see, what you figure out, though, is you still got to have the right uniform to come into the presence of something powerful. You still got to have a uh, positive pressure personnel suit of sorts. You don't need a perfect record. You don't need to come from a good family. You don't need to be on the path to career or financial success. You might not have the American dream in sight. You don't need to understand everything. You don't need to be able to read. You don't need to have certainty. You don't need to be free from doubts. You don't need to be sexually pure. You don't need to understand everything about your gender. You don't need to have your life together. What you need to know is this, is that you need to be clothed and covered in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. When Paul says, indeed, I've counted every other thing, every other qualification, I've counted it as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and you know what? I count them as dung, as rubbish, in order that what? I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Because Christ emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race, you are covered with the blood of Jesus to come into the holy places. Do you see the pattern and the price for access? It is as clear as day. These things are like a hyperlink in the scripture. And that when you click on blood, when you click on holy place, you will see how the trajectory of the story reveals that God's not wasting his time with the tabernacle. God is not wasting his time with 47 chapters about the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. He is revealing a picture and a pattern to help us understand just what it took and what it means to come back into fellowship with God. It's about knowing the pattern of access and the price that leads for you to know the purpose of access. You ever had an experience where you were welcomed into something that should have cost you money, but you got put on a VIP list? VIP means very important person, right? I recently went to a friend's concert uh, in North Carolina, and my friend, you know, he's a musician, he's, he's having this concert that night, and he says, you know what, man, I'm going to put you on the VIP list, so that when you come to the entrance of the club, you just tell the doorman, well, my name is on the VIP list. So I walk up that night, I'm feeling cool, I say to the doorman, hey, man, my name is, uh, my name is Joel, my name is uh, on the VIP list. Well, don't you know the man looked down at the list. He looked back up. He said, nope. (laughs) It's not on here. Problem was, my friend forgot to put me on the list. So I shelled out my $5, and I was humiliated. But the Lord says, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And in the book of Revelation, it says there's a book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And the name of the saints are written on it. And then when John sees in Revelation 7 this whole uh, gathering of the saints in white robes, he says, who are these clothed in white robes? And he says, these are those who have washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb. Right? These are the saints whose name is written in the book of life. And that is what we celebrate. So when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward you look him, see him there who made an end of all your sin. Sisters and brothers, this pattern and price of access is the path to joy and freedom in life. Setting your mind on things above where Christ is, where he stands ever to intercede for you and the minister and the most 
holy of places. You no longer need to have a life dominated by fear. You no longer need to have a life dominated by shame or control or aggression. You have access to the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. You have access into the very presence and heart of divine love that you were made for, that has been shown for you. He has done this all out of love. What is the purpose of all of this? It is to reunite us with the Lord. As Peaches and Herb said, reunited, and it feels so good. Reunited because we understood. There's one perfect fit, Jesus, and this one is it. We're both so excited because we're reunited. That is the pattern and price of access. We should not take this access lightly. We should live in perpetual amazement and gratitude that our Lord Jesus, the very presence of the glory of God, obliterated the, the separation that stood between us and God. And what the book of Hebrews says over and over again is that because of this, because your conscience can be clean, you can then go on to serve the living God. That's what it says every time. Now that you have been cleansed, go and love. Because you're not working for love anymore. You're not trying to achieve God's favor. You have God's favor. You're not trying to achieve other people's favor. You're not trying to achieve access into the 1%. You're not trying to achieve access into this house or that house or that earning bracket or that earning bracket or that social circle or this social circle because you have been brought into access into the most holy and desired place of dwelling with the Father. And so also the writer says we should with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we should find receive receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this access is to instill in us a reality of the power of prayer that we can go straight to God and ask for help in our lives. At the heart of the mercy seat, we see our own weakness and our own inability to save, even provide the means of saving ourselves. But at the heart of the mercy seat, we see the end of our power and the beginning of Christ. At the heart of the mercy seat, we find the heart of forgiveness, that the Lord has provided the means of forgiveness to us, and therefore we should extend that forgiveness to others. And if we don't, we have not truly apprehended the mercy seat. And as the Lord has granted us access to himself through the blood of Jesus, as he has welcomed us, we welcome each other into this very presence. We welcome our neighbor into this very access to God. We will get into this more next week, but the story of the scripture also reveals this trajectory, that we now, as the people of God, are the new tabernacle of the Lord, that God moves into our neighborhoods through us by his spirit. And as we worship Sunday in and Sunday out, season after season, the quality of our worship will vary. The quality of the sermon, as evidenced today, will vary. The How much you get out of the service will vary. How smoothly things run. But what we celebrate every single week is that at the end of the day, we have been given access to God and that we are a picture of access to God for our neighbors. Not out of anything special in us, but because we've been qualified to be those who can come to the place where all of our neighbors long to be, which is the very holy of holies with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we don't worship in this place with a holy place or an ark. We have two objects, really. We have a baptismal font and a table, one of which says you've been washed and cleansed and sanctified in the blood of Jesus, and one of which says, there's table on the bread, because God is here. Come feast on the sacrifice once made for all time, by faith, out of God's grace and his provision. Come feast and be fed, because you have been given access to the holy place. Amen.
for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.